Welcome to She Persisted. I'm your host, Sadie Sutton. Every Friday, I post interviews about mental health, dialectical behavioral therapy, and teenage life. These episodes break down my mental health journey, teach skills to help you cope with life, and showcase testimonials from individuals, including teens just like you. Whether you've struggled yourself or just want to improve your mental fitness, this podcast is your inspiration to live a life you love and keep persisting. This week's DBT scale is the Give Scale. The Give Scale is the skill you use when you're entering an interpersonal interaction and your goal is to improve the relationship. Give is an acronym that stands for Be Gentle, Act Interested, Validate, and Use an Easy Manner. So going into the interaction, you're going to be gentle, you're going to be nice, respectful, and you're not going to attack, threaten, judge, or sneer at the other individual. For acting interested, you're going to listen and appear invested in the other person. Body language goes very far here, so you're going to look at the person, you're going to make eye contact, and you're also going to be sensitive if the person expresses the wish to have the conversation at a later time. For validation, you're going to validate with both words and actions. You're going to show that you understand the other person's feelings and thoughts about the situation. You're going to try and see the world from their point of view by saying things like, I realize this is really hard for you. I see that X, Y, or Z. Really trying to empathize here. Lastly, you're going to use an easy manner. You can use a little humor. You're going to smile. You're going to make the other person feel comfortable and at ease and not add a ton of stress to the interaction. So that's the give skill. It can be used in any interaction where you want to improve a relationship, and it's a super simple skill to implement. Hello, hello, and welcome back to She Persisted. I have an amazing episode for you today with Andrea Arlington. She is an ICF PCC life coach specializing in family recovery and relationships. Andrea has an amazing story about how she turned her life around, learned from experiences, and now helps other families with exactly what she was going through, which is supporting your loved ones while they are struggling with addiction and sobriety. There are so many amazing tips and tricks in this episode, so much value to take away and implement in your life, so I know you will love it. If you want to follow along with Andrea, you can go to andreaarlington.com or follow her on Instagram at at andreaarlington. So with that, let's dive in. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Andrea. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. This has been a long time coming. Yeah, it really has. Yeah. So I want to start by hearing your story. You have quite the journey that has brought you to being a life coach today and helping families with recovery and improving their relationships. So talk to me about how you got to this point. There's a lot of different ways we could start that conversation. (laughs) Um, I think briefly, I just, I want to just tap into the idea that, that Substance use disorder and mental health issues are very much um, attributed to our childhood in many cases, right? And and I find that with the families that I work with, it certainly is true in my life. That this is generational trauma. Often, it is trauma that it could be experienced in the form of emotional neglect. Mm-hmm. Even parents that who have so much anxiety and an inner dialogue themselves that is that is non-supportive, they have yeah. they might suffer from low self-esteem or low self-worth or just a sense of being flawed even. And so then they bear children and they haven't done the work to clean up their own internal dialogue. They have a lot of unmet emotional needs themselves. And that was the case in my story. I had so much emotional trauma. Didn't realize it though. Started self-medicating myself when I was 12. I mean, that's the first time I tripped on acid. I'll put it that way. Yeah. But when I 
when I was nine, I, I was drinking and I think I started stealing my mom's cigarettes when I was 11. Now, let me just say, I lived in a middle-class or upper-middle-class neighborhood with a father who was very successful at the UW Wisconsin as um, an associate dean and a professor. Then, you know, he went on to have an outstanding career as a, a professor and taught all over the world and wrote books that are used all over the world for teaching uh, business of different types. I don't know. So it's not like it looked like a bad situation from the outside yeah. in terms of, of, of a family system. But on the inside, the family system was really challenging for me mm -hmm. and or also for my younger brother. And what I mean by that is that it wasn't okay for me to be who I was based on the messaging I got. Now, I do want to specify that what I mean by that is, is that we are, as little people, only operating primarily from the reptilian brain, which is the brain that keeps us safe. It lets us identify whether or not there's a threat and it helps us stay alive. So we don't have access to the prefrontal cortex, which I know you know a lot about. Yeah. And what ends up happening is, is we don't have the ability to say, oh, the reason my dad doesn't drop his suitcase at the front door when he comes home and swoop me up in his arms like my best friend Joni, Joni's dad does mm -hmm. is because it's not because he doesn't love me. It's that my dad is driven by unmet emotional needs to perform as a professor in a way that gets him ahead and and gets him an income and and uh you know his his goal as a young man as a, as a father at that time in my life and i remember i was like five or six years old he told me one day when we were driving by a cemetery was that his goal was to when he died people would remember him as having made a huge impact on his students lives and as I got older, I'm like, yeah, but what about me? You know, yeah. why doesn't my dad swoop me up in his arms when he comes home like Joni's dad does? Mm -hmm. There must be something wrong with me. I am flawed. I didn't have the ability to rationally think, oh, that has nothing to do with me. My dad is living out his own internal drama that is based on his own unmet emotional needs, which in his case, you know, he was raised by very undereducated parents during the depression he was the first person in the family to get a college degree and his whole self-worth and identity came from being an outstanding professor and becoming known around the world for the work that he did it wasn't about and for and for raising us as kids his goal was to get us to be extremely good at school and then he felt like he had done his job right yeah. But what I needed as a little girl, and I know my younger brother did as well, was to feel emotionally connected and to feel heard, seen, acknowledged, and celebrated. Yeah. We were. And that didn't happen in my family. So it was painful for me. And eventually I, gave, I started to resent my father. And as I resented him more and more, obviously that's not a good mindset to have. And I think we've talked before, Sadie, about what happens when we start to have these strong emotions. We actually get a biochemical cocktail. Yeah. We become so familiar with and used to, it's like we are addicted to it. It's as yeah. much as it's, like your, it's your sense of home because you're there so often. Right? Exactly. And every time I felt resentment and anger, 
it gave me more of those biochemicals that resentment and anger release into the bloodstream from, you know, from our gut and from our brain. And I started living from a place of resentment and anger toward authority figures and toward my father, particularly. But I also longed for love and connection and a sense of of belonging so that I started connecting with older boys at a very young age and got myself into some very scary, unhealthy situations, which reinforced trauma, which reinforced the idea or the sense of not being good enough and not being lovable, because how could somebody treat me like that if they really, if I was lovable? So all of these messages I took in because I didn't have access to the prefrontal cortex, which would have said to me, that's not yours, you know? You attracted that, yes, because of the way you felt like you had to earn love. You were programmed to feel like you had to perform to get love and that love was conditional on your performance, based on your performance. That's not a good place to to be as a child. So many of us are. No, it's insane. It's, it's It's the programming that we're receiving and I... I relate so much to your childhood experience, and I talk about that a lot on the podcast, how we all have these really similar emotional experiences, whether it's the unmet emotional needs, not feeling deserving of love, not receiving the love that we innately deserve. And it's all this symptomatic in ways that we try to get those needs met that really separate us. But when we break it down to the core beliefs and the emotional experience, that's what people relate to. And then you go from there of how can I, how can I internally heal? How can I reparent myself? And I'm sure we'll get to that. But no, it's something that so many teens are struggling with. And it's, it's scary that we're not talking about it enough. Exactly. And and so what I believe, you know, is, is so important is that parents start to do the work as soon as they know they're expecting, right? Like, wh- what are my unmet emotional needs? In my case, I felt flawed as a, as a human being, but it was unconscious, right? So what did that drive me to do? It drove me to want to look perfect and act perfect, which by the way, was role modeled to me by my mom. She really had a sense of low self-worth as well and felt flawed. And so she was, you know, never left the house without looking perfect, right? Was always dressing to look as good as she could, even if it meant shopping at thrift stores, you know, to, mm-hmm. to buy expensive clothes. And Anyway, bottom line is, is that I, I was a lot like her, right? This is a generational system. Yeah. Family stuff. And it's all you ever knew. Like it's your norm. What would make you think, okay, maybe things don't have to be this way. Maybe I don't have to feel like I need to present as perfect if it's all that you've ever known. Exactly. Exactly. And she was taken care of by my father, right? So men take care of women and, you know, you have to look pretty and be beautiful and be perfect and never rock the boat if you want to be taken care of. And so that was sort of the philosophy that I believed and was role modeled to me. And most of the women in my family generations before mine and and certainly my family of origin, that's the way it was. And so when I was in my younger years, you know, I got married very early to an older man, 10 years older than me. Then I was with him for six years and went on to date other men and left that marriage because I got married when I was 18, which was very silly. And, but, but because I was craving that connection and that love and belonging and wanting to feel valued and so on and so forth, 
that's what felt right to me at the time because I, it, I had left home when I was 14. So I had spent all of those years searching for a sense of, of love and belonging. And I had lived in different countries modeling. And, you know, I, I felt like my dad used to say, we well, have so much high self-esteem because people who don't could never travel and do the things that you've done and, and have the self-confidence to do it. And, you know, my, actually my take on it was, yeah, I had self-confidence to be in front of a camera and to have a relationship with a camera. I felt confident about that. But the reason I felt like I wanted to travel and go to all these places is because I was searching for a place to feel belonging, right? You're constantly chasing that. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. so much sense. Yeah. So when I finally did end up in LA and met my daughter's father on a set, I you know, he was much older than I was and had a very successful career, but he was mentally unhealthy and I didn't recognize it because I was just so unconsciously driven by seek the, you know, seek the support of an older man, seek the support of somebody who, you know, dressed a certain way and lived a certain lifestyle that would take care of me. And, but I didn't realize that I needed to take care of myself and that self-love and and learning how to heal from this internal dialogue that I'm not good enough would have been, I would have landed in a different relationship. I would have never settled for that relationship. And I would have not been the kind of mom I was, which was a mom who was anxious. Their dad's substance use disorder, which was not even something I was even aware of in the world. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't identify that there was such a thing as substance use disorder. I just knew that when he got high, he was fun. When he drank, if it was just red wine or white wine, he was okay. But as soon as he started drinking hard alcohol, he became evil. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know, even know that there is such a thing as evil. I'll just mm-hmm. say that he wasn't himself. And yeah. he, he was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that was scary. Right. So I was more and more anxious. And then I finally, after having my first daughter, Alexis, I was like, this isn't working for me. I started seeing a therapist, started going to Al-Anon, did that for five years, five days a week, trying to, you know, figure out how do I fix him? Which is, by the way, not what we're capable of. No, that's so interesting that you were the one that was going to like Alcoholics Anonymous and trying to do all this work to fix him and to like try and fulfill that, that gap. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I was going to, I, I did go to some AA meetings, but primarily I was going to Al-Anon, which is the family 12 mm-hmm. program. Oh, okay. I didn't even know there was a difference between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the message, the message with Al-Anon, and this is a bit of a sidetrack is let go, let go of them and let them hit bottom. And that's a very antiquated message considering most of the drugs that are being used by children today are you know, like one hit and you can die, right? It's a a totally different game. Yeah. Totally a different game. And when, you know, back in the 1930s, when AA and the 12-step program was originated, and then the family program Al-Anon started, we were dealing with men who sat at bars and drank too much, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to sort of give them some space to hit bottom, you know, and let go. But it's not okay with our children today. And and, and that's the work that I do. But I didn't start that work, of of course. Until my daughters were struggling with addiction themselves. And, but a lot of their trauma, emotional trauma came from me not having healed my own emotional trauma. And therefore 
I raised them not having the ability to support their emotional needs when their dad fell off the wagon and really got into his addiction and ran off with another woman and left us and, you know, eventually lost his career and became homeless. All of those things were going on. And the only thing I could think of was, well, because I was living back in the amygdala, the fight, flight, the brain, quick, find a husband, quick, find somebody to support you and your two girls, because you can't do this on your own. You know, I didn't have any faith in myself at all. And so their emotional needs were sort of shoved aside because I couldn't take on all of their emotions and deal with mine. I really regret not having found somebody who had walked the path that I was in and had found recovery in a way that allowed them to feel a sense of of deep love and healing their own sense of being flawed so that so that I was okay and I didn't feel like I I had to go get somebody to make me feel better, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That never works. It never lasts. Yeah. And, and so, you know, my girls felt emotionally abandoned by me and neglected by me just the way I felt neglected emotionally by my parents. Yeah. Um, and it is a generational thing, but it was so unconscious on both part, you know, on my parents' part and on mine. You know, my little brother became an, uh, somebody who struggled with addiction from the time he was probably 14, he was shooting uh, cocaine and, and had other substances that he used. And I think a lot of it was that he was discouraged from feeling good about his natural gifts, which were music and art. But my dad was, you know, so discouraging. It was, it was sports and, and education, you know, yeah, Not the same game. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's so powerful. I think your story really shows how much generational trauma can impact so many different individuals. I think it also shows how normalized our family environments or our families of origin are. We don't think that things can be different. We don't realize that things might not be healthy. For listeners, if they're for the first time hearing about generational trauma, they're for the first time questioning, okay, maybe my needs weren't met. Maybe I wish something was different. What is your advice to kind of recognize that something maybe isn't right and then move forward to kind of shift that that trauma and stop it from continuing to future generations? You guys have heard me talk about it before. It is a tried and true part of my routine at this point. It is magic mind. I am always busy. I'm always on the go. Every single day comes with a to-do list. I love it. I thrive in it, but I have to be really intentional with how I plan my time and optimize for productivity. One of my secrets is Magic Mind. What this is, is a productivity drink. It's not an energy drink and it has all natural ingredients like adaptogens, which help decrease stress, nootropics, which boost blood flow and cognition, and matcha to keep you focused. The flavor tastes really good because there's honey in it. To sweeten it, you get rid of that bitterness from the matcha, and it comes in a little bottle that looks like a juice shot. The packaging and the branding is so cute. It's on point. I'm obsessed with having them in my fridge. You probably have seen me post about it on my Instagram too. What I do is I drink one little shot of Magic Mind in the morning with my normal cup of coffee, and it really helps you get through that midday slump. Instead of feeling like tired and sluggish and struggling to get things done, you're able to stay focused, you're able to continue to check things off your to-do list and get through that moment where you're really struggling with productivity. 
It also helps to fight off procrastination, brain fog, fatigue, and some ADD symptoms. So if you want to try out Magic Mind and improve your productivity, you're going to go to magicmind.co slash persisted. That is M-A-G-I-C-M-I-N-D dot co. And you're going to use code persisted for 20% off at checkout. That's right, 20% off Magic Mind when you use code persisted at checkout. So all of my busy college students, everyone who is days are filled with to-do lists, this one's for you, magicmind.co slash persisted, use code persisted for 20% off. Right. Well, thank you for asking. That's a great question. And then, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was, is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Because, you know, that those primary needs for a physical shelter, food, clothing, and then it goes up to, I think it's, you know, love and belonging is maybe second or third in the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But, you know, we can go back and we can go, okay, were my primary needs for food, shelter, clothing, and safety met? And if they weren't, who was responsible for meeting those that didn't? And what was my takeaway from that? Like, what did I tell myself? The world isn't a safe place. There's not enough money ever to go around. People abandon me. Nobody comes when I cry. Those are the kind of stories that we start to play in our mind and and they become a pattern in our thinking that they're a loop, a looped story. And then they start to obviously create that biochemical addiction as well, which, you know, kind of when our bodies aren't getting that same thought neuropathway activated every day, we go through withdrawal physically. We physically feel the withdrawal, but it's not conscious. We just get anxious, right? Oh, there's something off. Well, oh, okay, quick. The body tells the brain, think about that memory or find something in my environment right now that makes me feel insecure so that I get the dose, you know, or cortisol or um, adrenaline or dopamine or serotonin or norepinephrine, whatever it is that is associated with that emotion. We're going to, we're going to, our bodies tell our brain, Hey, what's going on? We haven't had that dose today. And you, we've been getting it every day since you were a kid, quick activate a thought that's going to make you feel insecure so that we get that same cocktail. So we look Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we decide, okay, okay, if those needs weren't met, whose responsibility was it? What are the stories I told myself? Are those stories true or were they the same stories basically that my parents were living? You know, my parents, did my parents believe that money was hard to come by? Yes. Did my parents feel a sense of self-worth and love and belonging just because they existed, not because they performed? No. So who do those beliefs belong to? Who do those thoughts belong to? Are they true? Obviously, they're really not true. Because when we're born, we're born with a pretty much of a clean slate and, and, and we're imprinted by those, those family of origin messages that come from generations back, right? And so then we get to that sense of love and belonging. Was I accepted for who I was? Or was love conditional in my family? Most of us had a lot of conditional love, yeah. you know? You got to be the best. You got to be the A student. You got to be the best on the on the football team. You've got all of these messages, and it's not because the parents were concerned about the kids living up to that expectation for the kids' sake as much as it was 
I don't feel good enough. I feel flawed inside of myself. If my kids appear to be perfect, then at least I'm good at something. And that's called parenting, right? Yeah. But parenting is not about creating a mold that our children have to live up to, or not necessarily even a mold, but making them live up to our expectations through their performance. That's not what parenting is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be custodians to keep them safe in a way that allows them to to bring the gifts that they are innately given and help them expand those and and help them be help them to to bring those out into the world in a way that makes them feel like they are authentically ex- self-expressed and yeah. Uh, yeah so i don't know but that's not the way i was raised and it's not yeah. the way raised my girls all I was concerned about was safety but it was driven from a sense of insecurity and fear rather than logical uh prefrontal cortex safety which is like yes you should probably go to school now and get an education Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you can have a career that will be at least stable for you and the girls instead of quick find a man you know yeah Uh, Right. So uh, there's a way that we, we can either operate from the prefrontal cortex and be rational and not emotionally driven. And that was not happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I highly recommend that. And what I think I would like to say additionally is that there are mental health professionals who are available, who are people who have lived in the shoes that a person is living in. And I recommend that if you're going to be interviewing people to work with, that you find experts in the field that might be able to help you who've actually lived through these things, because it's one thing to be all, you know, by the book, but mm-hmm. you haven't had that experience. Experience is the most powerful teacher. It really is. And I think that's why I love what I do so much because it's interesting, the women I attract in, uh, into my coaching are women who are living ex- like almost exactly what I lived. And, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, it's, it's really interesting and have daughters who are struggling with use disorders. Yeah, yeah. I think one really key part of your story and your healing was reparenting, both reparenting what you learned and then being able to reteach yourself to parent your daughters in a way that just helped helped them feel universally loved and understood and cared for both and again for yourself and then for others. So to walk listeners through like a little reparenting 101, what is it? What are the first steps you could take? And how did that help you shift your your outlook and your relationships? Well, that's a great question. I think that reparenting, there's a lot of different aspects to it. But the primary thing to do is to be able to operate more from your prefrontal cortex than your um, amygdala, the the reptilian area of the brain. And that requires being calm because you can't have access to your prefrontal cortex, which is the executive decision-making area of the brain. It's rational, it's creative. It's, it's, It's gonna help you make rational decisions, not emotionally charged reactions. Mm-hmm things. So that's going to be a really important thing for people to, to learn how to master being calm, having an inner peace, a lands inner landscape that is peaceful. Right. And so how do you do that? 
you, you can do mindfulness practices. One thing that I've learned recently, which I love, is called finger holding. And each one of your fingers represent, this is through Chinese medicine. It goes back, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. You can Google it, a finger mm-hmm. holding, right? And you'll find out a lot of information. But basically you hold one finger securely, not squeezing it tight, and you take three breaths. And it's amazing, Sadie. And then you move to the next finger and you take three breaths. Now, each finger represents a different um, organ in the body and a different system. And it affects the autonomic nervous system. It has like certain fingers will calm you down from anxiety, will alleviate fear. So go ahead and Google that, guys, if you're watching this. Um, finger holding for um, a mindfulness practice. Okay. And it really is very soothing. Mm -hmm. That's very calming. So that's a good mindfulness practice. Plus there's all sorts of apps, right. You can get. So another thing that we, we kind of started to touch on a a minute ago in terms of looking at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is understanding, okay, are the, the needs that I have for a sense of love and belonging being met? And one of the things that we need to become really good at is finding ways to nurture ourselves because feeling good about ourselves requires taking care of ourselves. Am I getting enough sleep at night? Am I eating a healthy diet? Am I um, doing the mindfulness calming exercises? Do I cultivate relationships with other people who are healthy? Those kinds of things. So self-care is really it's really nourishing to the soul practicing compassion for your childhood experience and for the child that still needs to be loved and to feel emotionally supported you know there are visualization exercises i love kenneth soares s-o-a-r-e-s i think it is Uh, youtube meditations because he often brings the the little child into the meditation. And when I do those, it feels so good. I just feel so, so loving toward the little girl that's, you know, still hasn't had all of her needs met. So those are some, some suggestions. Is that helpful? Yeah, I think that's those are some amazing resources that people can implement like right now, whether it's working to research, working with a professional who gets what you've gone through, whether it's using mindfulness practices to ground yourself, taking care of your basic self-care, all of those will give a little bit of movement to the needle as far as beginning the reparenting process and and right. starting to understand your your upbringing more. I think another thing that re- would be really helpful to touch on is some best practices that you recommend for clients and people that you talk to if they're struggling with their family relationships, if there's either a lot of conflict or a lot of unhealthy dynamics. Are there different things where you're like, avoid this, try doing this more? What are some, some common recommendations that you make? Well, one thing is that it's really important for you to realize that you and your loved ones and all of us have a deep need to feel seen and heard and appreciated and even celebrated. And when we don't have those needs met, we will numb or we will... we will, we will armor up with anger and defensiveness, or we will become a people pleaser so that we can 
feel heard and feel seen and feel loved. So we need to, first of all, find somebody in our world, hire a professional coach or a mentor or a therapist who we can spend time with being seen and heard and appreciated and even celebrated, right? Mm -hmm. And don't expect our loved ones to be willing to be that person because they're so hungry themselves to feel seen and heard and appreciated and celebrated. And part of the reason that's driving them to their substance use disorder, which is a strategy for feeling better, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Is because they don't feel good because they're not feeling heard, seen, appreciated and celebrated. So what do we do if we're trying to help them feel better so that they don't need to numb as much? This isn't the cure-all, but it's certainly a beginning. Yeah. Is that we learn to communicate in a way that says, I hear you. I'm I'm not trying to change you. You have every right to use the strategies that are working for you right now, even though, you know, society deems them as being unhealthy. And up until now, I have told you that, that I, you know, all sorts of things, right? I can't, you're doing this to me. How Mm -hmm. could you do this to me? I, you don't love me. If you really loved me, you know, those messages, instead, we need to be saying, you must thinking anyway, you must be in so much pain because nobody sticks a needle in their arm without being in pain to, yeah. to, to numb, right? Wow, that's a strategy right there that just knocks out all the pain. And yeah. uh, um, what scares me, honey, is that you know you have every right to, to use the best strategy that you found up until now, but I'm so afraid I'm gonna lose you. Talk about, you know, talk from your heart, but I also know that it's wrong for me to tell you that you can't do what's working for you right now. My, my wish is that somehow you and I could find a way to help you discover strategies that might help you in a way that also doesn't hurt you so that Mm -hmm. I don't lose you. I don't want to lose you. And I can't, I'm not going to tell you, you have to change for me. I'm not going to do that because that's selfish. I'm not. And now people might be listening to this going, what is she talking about? My kid is on fentanyl, right? But here's the thing. The second we tell somebody that they have to stop doing something for us so that I can sleep at night and so that they don't die. So I don't have to live with them being dead. That is not going to lead down a path or lead up a path toward a person saying that they feel heard and seen and appreciated and, and celebrated, you know, it's, it's going to say to them, she doesn't understand me. If she really understood me, she would understand why I'm doing this and she wouldn't hate me. I feel hated. I feel flawed. I feel judged. I feel shamed. I feel um, like I don't belong with her. I, I feel ostracized by her. Those are messages that are so often the message that our loved ones receive, and it's not intentional from our part, but we don't get the help that we need to understand what it is that our children are actually dealing with, or our spouses are actually dealing with 
that's driving them to want to numb in a dangerous way like that. And instead, we we think that if we just shamed them enough, they'll stop. If we just if we just make them feel bad enough, they stop. No, they feel bad already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, And we know that intrinsic motivation is a much more powerful motivator than extrinsic motivation is. I mean we know that from a psychological perspective, but I mean, that was exactly what happened in my treatment when I was going through outpatient and inpatient programs because I had to be there because my parents told me I needed to or doctors were like, this is the next step. I didn't see any shift at all with what I was feeling, whether it was depression or anxiety or feeling isolated and alone. And it was only once I wanted to get better for me that things actually did change and that I stopped feeling as depressed and I stopped being suicidal. So both from the the experience perspective and the psychology perspective, trying to, again, this is also extrinsic, but trying to get someone to be internally motivated, it's going to lead to more long-lasting change and it's going to get the results that you want to see instead of forcing them into a corner. of. And that's like we talked about at the beginning, how getting the AA philosophy is getting them to hit rock bottom. It's because it facilitates the intrinsic motivation. It gets that person to want to get better only for themselves. And there's other ways to get there than letting someone hit rock bottom. Oh my God, thank you for that. I was afraid to say that that was- Yeah, guys, guys, this is what we're taking away. Only hit rock bottom, but you're facilitating the intrinsic motivation, whether that's through love and support and helping them feel seen. And they're like, I feel safe enough to take this leap of faith and try and get help and to try and change things. I feel supported enough to risk getting worse so that I can get better. There's- all of these things happen through different routes other than letting the person hit rock bottom. But it's, again, really facilitating that intrinsic motivation. Exactly, exactly. And I think letting people hit rock bottom can actually exacerbate a sense of- It's of, traumatic. Of very, yeah, yeah, trauma and shame. And what do they do when they feel trauma and shame? They numb. Yeah, yeah. They numb and numb and numb and get more and more numb. So that's, that's not a solution that I, you know, that might motivate some people, but boy, I'll tell you, the majority of studies show that it's deadly. So don't. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely interesting to see how mental health and addiction treatment evolve over the years. Like these common threads are there and you can see why people try different things, but we're learning more and more about what's effective and what has the least consequences and has the most long lasting results. And Mm-hmm. What where we're at now is really from a compassionate and caring perspective um, so. and supporting people through their journey. And I think that is an amazing spot to be in. There's still a lot of growth that's going to happen and is happening, but we're definitely on the right direction. Yes. And I, I think that it's important for people, parents who who want to also, you know, like part of the thing is that I found myself doing was when Alexis was saying to me, mom, you did this, you did that. It's your fault. It's this and that, right? My initial instinct was to be defensive. And when I, when we're defensive, we're more polarizing, right? And, and instead I needed to find somebody to tell my story to so that I was relaxed. I didn't feel like it was all bottled up inside of me and I didn't need to give context to her anymore. I just needed to unpack it and understand what the context even was for me and then I was available to actually sit and listen because I had an, I had come to my own internal peace and had self-compassion and self-forgiveness. And that's part of the reparenting process, right? 
is to do the work so that we can feel a sense of self-love and not feel so flawed as human beings, as parents, and you know, the inner child feeling flawed as well. All of that needs to happen for us individually, because the greatest gift we can give our loved one is an internal sense of, of calm and let them be who they are with you hold, being able to be a container for it in a, in a really open-handed way. And I know it's not easy to do that, but it doesn't happen at all unless we're getting that help that yeah. I needed and didn't get. Yeah. Um, thankfully, Alexis you know, was facing six years in prison and, and the judge gave her an option of a year in treatment in exchange for, and then three years of parole, you know, the thing is, or probation, I should say, the thing was, is that she was forced to get well. And then as she got better, she started setting boundaries with me and helping me understand that I had a lot of mental health issues myself and I needed to do the work. I needed to do the inner child work and the reparenting and all that stuff. And then once I did that, she and I were able to have a healthier relationship because she had done it and I had done it. And now we were able to meet as self, uh, more self-actualized, more self-loving adults. Yeah. You mentioned something there that you mentioned earlier as well, which is that we don't have to rely on our families solely for love and support and validation. I think our families of origin were really The narrative is given to us over and over again that we should be getting love and validation and support from our families of origin and that that should be like the main place that you're going to for the to get those emotional needs met. And that's not necessarily true. You can Yeah. And when you get that love, validation, support, feeling seen from another place whether it's a therapist or a really great group of friends or your your chosen family, you're then able to show up as a better version of yourself in your family relationships because you're not like, again, we talked about how getting your emotional needs met. It's a need. It's not a want. It's not a nice thing to have. So you're getting those met and then you can show up in your family relationships just, just being there without needing to get those needs met and you have more wiggle room to be like, yeah, I see how you're saying that even though I completely disagree with it and I don't feel seen when you say that, you can kind of give space for that. And so that's something really powerful that I think we forget or that we don't know, which is that our families of origin don't have to be the only place that we get validation and love and support from. And if you do get all those emotional needs from your family of origin, great, amazing, so happy for you. That's the ideal situation. But when that doesn't happen, there's other places where you can get that in a really healthy way. Yes, that's very true. And I think that it's important to to note that when we're feeling unsupported and unloved and unseen and unheard and uncelebrated and unaffirmed by our families, it's a really powerful thing to say to my to ourselves, how am I affirming them? How am I hearing them? How am I seeing them? How am I celebrating them? Because when we get our cup filled, right? When we fill our cup, then we can just give them what they need. Let me just, you know, like examples, talking to your child or your parent or your sibling. I remember that one time when you blah, 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 blah. That was so fun. I had such a great time with you. Mm -hmm. I would love for us to do something like that again. You're seeing them. You're acknowledging them. You're celebrating them. You know, I often recommend find ways to create 
a vision for something to look forward to for the two of you. Try to avoid making the primary interactions with your loved one about what's wrong. Find ways to do things together that feel um, outside of that so that they so that there's connection that's happening in a way that feels safe emotionally for both of you. Yeah, it's just, we need to check in with ourselves. If I'm not feeling seen, heard and affirmed and celebrated by my family, ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? And then yeah. do, do it. Because when they start to feel seen and heard and celebrated and affirmed, because we can, we can affirm our child who's even using heroin. We can say, you know what? Hearing your voice today, made my day yeah you know from them when we hear their voice we can say that text message you sent me made my heart so happy you know and we don't do enough of that mm -hmm. uh, we focus on what's wrong you know what they haven't done what they're doing to themselves what they're doing to me and that's not going to help ever yeah yeah no i think that's so true leaving people with a like an educational resource, whether it's a book, a podcast, an article, something like that, what are some recommendations that you have? One of my favorite books is called Beyond Addiction by Jeffrey Foote with an mm -hmm. E on Amazing book for learning how to approach conversations compassionately, learning how to understand what the, sub, the, uh, the substance use disorder is doing to the brain of your loved one and how it um, developed and just it's just a compassionate way of seeing it all and um, learning how to communicate in a way that causes connection rather than more ostracization or polarization in the relationship so that's one of my favorite books I love my daughter's podcast recovering from reality I listen to every episode when I edit it I definitely agree yeah she brings some amazing people from the field of mental health and people who've just had a lot of personal growth work um, that they've done themselves that have turned their lives around. I love Med Circle. Med Circle is a great resource for mental health conditions and, and how to navigate them. There's a lot of free YouTube content from Med Circle on, like I said, on YouTube. So that's another resource. Mm -hmm. And oh, do you have a course? Oh, yeah. I have a course <laughs> called The Life the life reset course. And it really is on how to reparent yourself, how to learn how to deal with anxiety, how to reduce inflammation in your brain, which allows you to access your prefrontal cortex um, more easily. All sorts of great stuff in there. There's like 16 modules or 15 modules. There's communication courses in there on how to understand the internal voices in your head, like critical parent voice and how that triggers the rebellious child and you know like so that we learn how to live from a place of of wholeness and 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 the adult inside of us rather than all of these other voices that we all have we all mm -hmm. have multiple voices in our head but how yeah. do we decipher which one is operating and so on and so forth yeah so that's all part of the life reset course I love that well where can listeners follow along with you check out your work and connect Great. So you can go to my website, andreaarlington.com. And there is an opportunity to sign up for a free 30 minute consultation link that you can click on and, and that'll take you there. And I am starting my own YouTube channel as well, which is called Revelations of a Bad Mom, which I share a lot of my experience and the, the hope that's there today and the 
the research that I've done and, and what's working for my clients and so on and so forth. So it'll be fun. It'll be entertaining and it'll be something that most uh, parents can resonate with. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me on She Persisted. I know so many listeners are going to find this conversation so helpful. Thank you, Sadie. Thank you for of doing course. this. It's so important. Thank of you. Of course, of course. In case you skipped the end, Andrea and I talked all about her story, what she went through with her family growing up, raising her kids, and now how she became a family recovery life coach. We dive into trauma, family relationships, sobriety, getting sober, supporting someone trying to get sober, and so much more. If you enjoyed this week's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or family member who you think would enjoy it rate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you're listening, tag me on Instagram at at Podcast for a little repost and a shout out. With that, I will see you next Monday.